the data itself and the underlying infrastructure to access and and modify that data is kind of like the core of decentralization. And then everything on top of that can be less decentralized, I think. So what that basically would mean is you have the blockchain or a blockchain-like network that you interact with and you're sending messages to and updates and stuff, kind of like a database. But if you build an API on top of that, that allows someone to kind of build a more performant application on top of it, like Twitter could not be built on top of a blockchain ever, anytime within our lifetimes, probably. Mainly because when you log on to Twitter, you, you were sending essentially like tens or even hundreds of API calls like under the hood for all these very crazy things. So like you're logged in under a certain user, you have blocked people, you have muted people, you're following certain people, you know, you've liked certain tweets. So all these things go into this recommendation algorithm and they are all different. And to try to program that into a blockchain is basically almost impossible. So what you see people doing are building out APIs on top of these networks. And people have tried to build decentralized APIs. And while it's technically possible to do some of that stuff, to get it to where it's compared to the type of app that most people expect to have in 2024, it's basically impossible to kind of get that same performance without some centralization. So I think like having an API that sits in between the front end and the database, which is the blockchain, making it performant um, is, is an okay thing. Because what can happen is that that uh, API can completely go away and all of the data is still there and, and nothing's you know happening to it. So you, you still have the properties of immutability, censorship resistance, and permanence. In this episode, we talk with Nader Dabit, who is a head of DevRel at Avara, which is the, the parent company of all of the things that Aave and Lens are building and all that stuff. Kevin, I'm curious what you took away from this conversation. Yeah, it was neat to hear his perspective on sort of where social media is going and what parts of the stack are acceptable being centralized versus what parts should remain decentralized. I think he had a pretty cool perspective on that. We talked a little bit about Web3 gaming and sort of like the way that that compares to the web application stack. And it's generally he has a lot of background as a software engineer that he sort of brought to the table. And you could definitely see that he's put a lot of thought into what he works on and the way that he sort of interacts with others in the space. Anything that stood out to you, Chase? No, I think Nader is just a, a wonderful human in the space. And of course, we also got a little tidbit at the end about a, a tip and trick on keeping your, your activity in GitHub up. So yeah, I, I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. We are here with Nader Davit, who is the head of DevRel at Avara and is also the founder of DeveloperDAO. Nader, super excited to have you on the pod. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me and inviting me. Very excited to have you on the show. Excited to dive into what DevRel in the space has looked like over the last couple of years. Talk about building consumer applications and how you're feeling about space and, and what you think the next couple of years look like in the space. Maybe before we do that, you can give a little bit of context on what you've done in crypto, how you got into crypto, all of that. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, I think I've been now in this space for a little under three years. So like April will be the third year working here. And then I've been buying and investing and selling and stuff just on the side since I guess 2015, 16. So like late 2015, I think, is maybe when I first started playing around with crypto. So I guess that's almost eight years ago or something like that. But like working three years and really understanding it only like three years because before I started working in the space, I didn't really know anything about how all this stuff worked. I was just speculating and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I started working in this space because I was doing DevRel for AWS. And before I got into DevRel AWS, I was actually running my own company, teaching developers how to write mobile apps. And the way I was getting customers was doing content marketing. And for developers, that basically means like tutorials and videos and teaching, you know? So like YouTube, Medium were kind of like the two places where I was creating the most content. And I ended up having quite a bit of success in business coming through those channels. A lot of companies were just reaching out to me. They would Google something and they would find the answer to that in one of my blog posts. And then they would learn about my company and then they would ask me to come out and teach their their devs. So I started getting involved in the whole like speaking in front of a, a crowd type of deal with that experience, which is something that a lot of people obviously want. And a DevRel, someone that can kind of go in front of people and teach them something and also speak at conferences and stuff. So that's kind of how I got into DevRel was running a company that was doing content marketing. And then I got hired by one of my clients at the time. was It was Amazon. Someone at AWS asked me if I would just want to work and do this full-time, essentially in a DevRel role. DevRel was a little bit different like than what I was doing, obviously full-time. I was running a company, whereas with DevRel, you're just like only focused on, I guess, the teaching part. You're not having to obviously like invoice clients and and do all this other stuff. And then you have to kind of like consider the whole like marketing and branding from the perspective of what the company wants and things like that. But um, I think I got really bored in 2020 and 2021 working at, at AWS I felt like I'd been I'd been in software development for like eight or nine years at that point. And I just felt like nothing cool and crazy had happened in a long time. And we were just doing the same things kind of over and over. I think it's been really cool over the last few years. Crypto and Web3 became really popular, but also AI. So I think those are like two new areas that a lot of engineers have been excited about. Whereas in the past, they might have been working on something more boring. These areas are just like really fun and exciting and have attracted a lot of talent not only because they pay pretty well, but also just because they're a lot more fun than like traditional, a lot of traditional tech. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting, and maybe we can get some context around this, but at Avara, of course, you were doing sort of DevRel for Lens, and now it seems like more broadly doing some DevRel. And I think what's fun about crypto is that you can work on just about any kind of product. I mean, financial products are interesting. Social products are interesting. Like the rails are really robust enough to cover like a ton of different use cases. On that note, I feel like people might not actually be familiar with the brand of Avara because it's sort of new. Maybe you can give a little bit of context on that and then we can dive into some of the specific things under that brand umbrella. Yeah, for sure. Avara is so new. So you're right. I think a lot of people don't know And recently, I was going through the process of getting a loan and a mortgage type of deal. And the company was like so new, they couldn't find anything about it. And they were just thinking it was like kind of sketch. 
because it, it just was essentially like, you know, created or not created. It was just like officially announced or whatever, like a m- couple of months ago. It was in Ethos Istanbul, I think. Yeah. But um, Avara is the parent scammer. company. <laughs> Trying to yeah. take out money. Like crypto, like this company like doesn't exist, you know. <laughs> but um, the company is, I would call it like a parent company almost over Ave and Lens Protocol projects as well as some of the work that we're doing with Ave has to do with Go Stablecoin. And then also the company previously known as Ave, now Avara, also acquired Family Wallet as well as Sonar. And then we also are like now building and incubating a couple of new projects that will, you know, ultimately come out hopefully this year. So it's kind of, it kind of makes a lot more sense for them to have done this because Ave and Lens are completely separate. Ave and Sonar, Ave and Family Wallet, like all these new companies are all kind of separate. So Ave Labs is kind of like one of the companies within Avara. Totally. Yeah. And I think specifically, you've done a lot of work on DevRel around Lens, which has really interesting and exciting ecosystem around it. Maybe you can give a little bit of context on what Lens is for people who don't know. So for me, it's kind of like an infrastructure and set of APIs and tools and stuff for building out social applications or social features into applications. And it really resonated with me because at AWS, we were building developer APIs and infrastructure for building apps that was kind of in a similar spirit as what Lens is, but it was for different things. So we had things like services for creating messaging. So you might build a Twilio type of application and then use our tools and APIs to make that happen. Or you might just build a messaging app. But instead of kind of writing all of the code for the messaging, we offered like APIs that you could just hook into. So it abstracted away a lot of the complexity for creating that type of app. Also for things like authentication and authorization, also for serverless functions and serverless services. So there's this whole category of application backends called serverless or managed services. Both are kind of coined in a similar discussion. But I feel like Lens is a protocol that enables developers to build those types of apps. A lot of people look at Lens and they think it's like an actual application. I think some most people know that it's not at this point. But I think when it first was out, people were like, oh, I'm using Lens. But in, in fact, they were really just using an app that was built on Lens because we've never shipped ourselves like an actual Lens app. We just like built the, the infrastructure and other developers are building these Lens apps. So if you've used Hey or Butterfly, Linster, it used to be Linster is Hey now. So Lens2, which is now Tape. There's a few dozen pretty good applications that are out there that are just built on top of Lens. Yeah, it's been pretty neat to see social media evolve over the last few years, especially as Web3 has grown in popularity. You, you see a lot of new ideas of how to try to remove the centralization that exists in sort of like the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world. The idea that like a single CEO could basically just arbitrarily delete data and block people, ban them from the platform. So there's a lot of really neat ideas flying around with this sort of new generation of social media protocols. So how would you compare Lens to some of these other protocols that exist, just so people have kind of a frame of reference? So things like Farcaster or Mastodon or Blue Sky or or just generally that like the umbrella of the Fediverse, where yeah. does it fit into all of that? 
And maybe you can also define the fediverse because for some yeah. people are going to be like, are you talking about the cheese? Yeah, that's that, that's all awesome stuff to talk about and stuff that I'm always like really interested in and in looking into and, and learning more about. But the fediverse is essentially a software backend or application that's built using like a federated infrastructure which is kind of beyond the scope of this discussion, but it's more of just like a type of infrastructure. Whereas what we're building is closer to a protocol in the traditional sense of like a blockchain protocol, maybe. There's been a really interesting movement of decentralization in social media that has been ahead of its time in terms of like, if you compare the rest of the big software companies that are not really caring about Web3. But if you look at like, I think the top three, most people would agree with this, social founders and companies in the history of the world would probably be like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, which would be like Mark Zuckerberg group of, of apps. Then you might have also TikTok. Then you would also probably bucket Twitter because you know those are, I would say, the three most widely used types of social apps, or three of them at least. But Two of those three are actually moving towards what you might consider a decentralization. And those two are the Facebook, Instagram, Threads group of people. The head of both Instagram and Threads, his name is Adam Masseri. And he's a, a big like blockchain decentralization buff. Someone that talks at conferences, like gave a TED talk about decentralized social media and he literally is in charge of threads. And, and one of his first posts on threads was that we're moving into a decentralized infrastructure. And he, he, he talked about stuff that we've been talking about for a long time, like censorship resistance, owning your own data and being prevented from kind of like being banned from the platform. You know, the concerns that a lot of people kind of talk about when they talk about decentralization. So it's cool to see like someone that is that level of person running a company like that moving in, in that direction. I think today, actually, that Threads announced that they were going to ship the ability to integrate with Mastodon like by, by this year or something like that. It's, it's not just Mastodon, actually. It's the underlying like infrastructure that Mastodon uses. But that was kind of interesting. And then, then Twitter, obviously, like Jack Dorsey isn't involved in Twitter and like has talked crap about how it currently is since he left. And has gone and created like a new company called Blue Sky or, or whatever, or been part of that at least creation. And then now he's more involved with Noster. And Blue Sky is like more decentralized than Twitter, but Noster is like even more decentralized than Blue Sky. And it's closer to what maybe Lens is. I mean, then there's a bunch of other ones. Like, I guess DSO protocol is a protocol that is built specifically for social apps. And there's probably a dozen or two others that are out there. That, that people are just building. So there's kind of like a, almost like a somewhat crowded space right now. And I think that a lot of them have very nuanced differences, but they all are accomplishing similar, similar things. So I don't think that I would say, I would, I would probably encourage people to kind of try to keep up with a few of them, use some of those apps, see what they like, and then just to see what makes the most sense for them. I think there's more client diversity when you're focused mainly on the developer infrastructure because you're not focused on building the app yourself. You're just making it really easy for other people to build apps. So you end up seeing more experimentation on, on the apps. But often that means the in initial applications that come to market aren't as polished as something that might be a developer that is 
not only building the back end, but also the front end would be. So an example of that, I think, is a forecaster because they have a client that they also build. That to me is like, you know, pretty good. And, you know, I would say better than most lens apps, whereas we're focused on the infrastructure. So we're still, we have a couple of really, really great apps that are out there. And I think like with Orb, they're about to ship a new version, which I think will be as good or better than, than um, I think it's called Warpcast. But yeah, I would say I would I would encourage people if you're interested in this space to kind of explore all the options and and see what you like the best. Yeah, I want to talk about like how this changes development paradigms and and things like that. But maybe even before we get into that, in this landscape, there are really only a couple of these types of protocols that are on chain or even partially on chain. So like Farcaster is partially on chain. I think Lens is actually much more on chain, but I'm not totally sure that that's right. So Maybe you can add a little bit of context there around which of these different decentralized social networks are on chain and which parts of them are on chain, like specifically in the lens context. Sure. One of the first examples that became widely adopted was Mastodon. And Mastodon is built on something called Activity Pub. And they embrace certain characteristics around decentralization, but there there is no like blockchain or any type of immutability or anything like that involved. In fact, there are people that are running these like Mastodon instances that have full control over everything, basically. So they can just decide to ban you for some arbitrary reason. And if you've been on Twitter, you've probably seen some random like weird things that people get banned for. One of them that stuck out to me was like someone that posted about working at like a company and they got banned for being a capitalist. And they had been building up their following there for like six months. And it was just a very strange reason. So like, you don't feel comfortable investing your time in a place like that if you think that someone might just be able to kind of do that. So the permanence and stuff of, of blockchains becomes even more important. I would almost even describe it as like more fragmented than it is decentralized. You get none of the benefits of like <laughs> yeah. decentralization that we talk about. And it's all of the kind of downsides of like the fragmentation. Yeah, agree 100%. So with, with Lens... Everything is technically on chain if you consider Arweave a blockchain. And Arweave is kind of a blockchain while it's also not really a blockchain in the sense of what we think of as a financial blockchain. It's more of a data storage blockchain, which, you know, also has all of the characteristics that you would want permanence, immutability, censorship resistance, et cetera. The only difference is that it doesn't prevent the double spin problem, which doesn't matter like in social because if you're just posting a message, then it doesn't matter if your friend is also posting a message on the other side of the world at the exact literally same millisecond, because both of those transactions can get posted to the network at the exact same time without affecting each other. So therefore, it becomes a lot less expensive and resource intensive for the network to support that type of infrastructure. And it becomes a lot cheaper and a lot more scalable. So that's kind of why we chose Arweave for Lens for almost all of the transactions that are happening there. Now, if you do something financial related, meaning like you're buying an NFT or sending someone money through the network, those are still on chain, but everything else is not. And it's a very efficient kind of way of building a protocol because you have, again, all of the properties that you want when you need them. And you're kind of using the technology for what it's used for best. And I would say when someone builds a blockchain, the use case that they're typically, you know, building for are financial applications. Even though 
again, a lot of these properties are great for other reasons, but one of the properties typically programmed in is this prevention of the double spend problem, meaning that if two people post a transaction at the same time, one of those has to actually kind of uh, clear the network and be distributed throughout the whole network and be taken into account before the next transaction posts, which is a massive engineering problem. That's why you always hear people saying a thousand or five thousand transactions per second is like a great thing because even getting to that point is like a crazy hard challenge to solve. Yeah, the difference in dynamics between doing something with money and social is is very interesting when you think about the impacts on infrastructure. In that context, I'm curious, you know, obviously being in like a DevRel role, you you've thought a lot about and worked with a lot of developers trying to decide what infrastructure they want to build on. And so I'm curious when you think about developers that want to build consumer apps in crypto, what do you think the primary factors are in making that type of decision? And what types of infrastructure are best to build on? Obviously, you're biased, but I'm curious to hear your take. Yeah, there's a lot of money in in this space. And therefore, a lot of developers, when they become good, have they're just overwhelmed with opportunities and options. So it becomes that much harder, I think, to find developers to build on your thing in this space, just because there is so much out there that you can do. Just this week, we saw Optimism uh, retroactive funding, you know, give out like 110 million equivalent US dollars. And a lot of those went to people that were building within an adjacent ecosystem to Optimism. So let's say I come out with like a new blockchain tomorrow. What's going to be the draw for those developers if they they have at least a chance to kind of get some of that money the next time that happens and tap into all the other things that are happening with that ecosystem to build on my network. So it becomes almost all about... You, you can have like a really great technology, but it needs to be like an order of magnitude better than everyone else. Or you're going to have to pay them some money <laughs> in some way to kind of get them to build on yours. And when I say pay them money, like you don't necessarily actually have to give them money, but maybe you're building out this massively better network and they can be the first DeFi protocol on that network. And they know that you've raised a hundred billion dollars or a hundred million dollars. I don't know, some crazy amount like we see. Then they might realize, okay, if I'm the first to build a successful version of X on this network, then I can probably, you know, make money and then I can probably get a grant to do that. So. What developers are looking for, they're looking for a place that they can kind of build for a year or two at least, and at least know that the time and investment they've spent isn't going to go for nothing. So one of those things is often either applying the skills that they already have to an area or learning a set of skills that can be transferable somewhere else. And this goes back to kind of like the conversations that people are having between the different virtual machines that people are building on. Like the EVM, why is it important to even support the EVM? It's mainly because they're already 80-90% market share of smart contract devs that know Solidity and can build on the EVM without having to learn anything. So it's a very small lift for them to kind of take what they already know and apply it to a new place or even fork and copy other people's code and just deploy it to these new networks. But the restraint there is that you're kind of like having all of the constraints that come with that entire set of combination of language and and virtual machine and and everything that all the mistakes that were made 
in order to solve those, people are kind of like creating like brand new programming languages and new virtual machines, but those end up being new ecosystems. So if someone wants to learn that, they end up having to kind of learn everything from scratch and they're gambling on like a somewhat new network. So I would say like, if one of those did become successful because it was like so much faster and so much better, then the amount of return on that investment would be really high. But the chances are like a lot lower. So developers basically in this to compete, you have to have a good technology. You have to have some type of connections for them to be able to get paid. And you are also hopefully providing them a way to build using and applying their existing skill set. I think it's it's a really hard sell for some of the ZK EVMs that can't compile down to Solidity to, to try to convince devs to go learn an additional variant of Solidity. Like Cairo is just one example, but there's a lot of these other L2s that have just such a larger barrier to entry for that reason alone. And then you kind of add on the, the standard risk of like tying yourself to a brand new boat that has its own set of concerns. Yeah, I like the the overall sort of like thought process around analyzing how developers might want to spend their time. I think sort of like on a different axis, I want to hear your thoughts because I know you've thought so much about the benefits of the decentralized backend of the application versus a lot of times we're still sort of like open to centralization on the front end. So I'm just curious, is there an acceptable amount of centralization for different parts of the stack to sort of achieve the vision that you see for social media? And if so, like what is acceptable? We'll start with that. Yeah, that's a really interesting discussion and something that people fight about all the time online, I think, in terms of like decentralization maxis and people that, I don't know, they often sell something that they're building in this space as decentralized, but it's actually not when you start uncovering what they've actually built because it's so hard to actually accomplish anything when you're building this type of infrastructure. So I think that the data itself and the underlying infrastructure to access and and modify that data is kind of like the core of decentralization. And then everything on top of that can be less decentralized, I think. So what that basically would mean is you have the blockchain or a blockchain-like network that you interact with and you're sending messages to and updates and stuff, kind of like a database. But if you build an API on top of that, that allows someone to kind of build a more performant application on top of it, like Twitter could not be built on top of a blockchain ever, anytime within our lifetimes, probably. Mainly because when you log on to Twitter... You, you were sending essentially like tens or even hundreds of API calls like under the hood for all these very crazy things. So like you're logged in under a certain user, you have blocked people, you have muted people, you're following certain people, you know, you've liked certain tweets. So all these things go into this recommendation algorithm and they are all different. And to try to program that into a blockchain is basically almost impossible. So what you see people doing are building out APIs on top of these networks. And people have tried to build decentralized APIs. And it, while it's technically possible to do some of that stuff, to get it to where it's compared to the type of app that most people expect to have in 2024, 
it's basically impossible to kind of get that same performance without some centralization. So I think like having an API that sits in between the front end and the database, which is the blockchain, making it performant um, is, is an okay thing. Because what can happen is that that uh, API can completely go away and all of the data is still there and, and nothing's you know happening to it. So you, you still have the properties of immutability, censorship resistance, and permanence. But the API can... Anyone can in the world can build an API and you can access that in different ways. So I think like the most important part is kind of the blockchain or the underlying infrastructure. There are people trying to build like decentralized databases and things like that. I think that the combination of Iris Network and Arweave is a good place to start because you have kind of the fundamental building blocks there. And then you can kind of build better abstractions on top of that. But trying to kind of use a financial blockchain in that in that way is often more challenging because again, when you're storing stuff and that's the main thing you need it for, why do you need the extra constraints of financializing that transaction if you don't actually need it? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So it almost seems like the higher up the stack you go, the less sort of like required attributes of decentralization. Because I, MetaMask is always a common example where I remember when people were getting kind of upset that they used like their own RPC, but because they allow you to update the RPC, if they were to ever start doing anything shady, like the user could always, I think what's ultimately happening is sort of a shift in power dynamic, whereas you go on a website like Twitter or Facebook and like you have zero ability to take any sort of control, but even just offering that ability in Web3 shifts the balance of power enough that incentives are different and it doesn't make sense for the metamasks of the world to do anything shady to begin with. I'm curious how you might compare the sort of like Web3 application stack and these properties of decentralization to the sort of Web3 gaming stack. I think a good part of gaming is the front end in that case. Like the difference between a web application with sort of like a couple buttons, maybe there's a form in there versus like an entire interactive experience. So much of gaming feels like it is the front end. Is there sort of a difference in the way that you analyze the importance of decentralization in Web3 gaming or does the math still sort of add up to like the same? I think it's very similar in terms of how I conceptualize it. The thing with gaming is that you are already dealing with so many, I think, very, very big constraints. I mean, the real games that, that people think about when they think gaming like Xbox and stuff, some of those games take like five or 10 years now to build. And that's with using all of the latest tips and tricks and techniques and the best hardware and the best developers, all these things. So when you now are like throwing this new wrench in of decentralization, you're now like saying, okay, we're going to make it even like harder for you to build. So I think you have to kind of use decentralized technologies in a way that like makes sense for certain characteristics. And those even need to be abstracted away from the user. And then you kind of are just making an additive to the game or to whatever. And you're not trying to say, oh, you, you know, we're going to kind of bring in all these decentralized or what we're used to in the blockchain space things to the client and, and make them deal with this. So I think with the the main barrier there is typically like wallets and tokens. So 
you're obviously don't want someone going through that process on the game. So what, what's been great is we've seen a lot of work having been done on different types of account abstraction, as well as stuff like pass keys and ways to abstract and social off ways to abstract away the wallet. So you can kind of under the hood have the transactions happening on behalf of the user, maybe without them needing to kind of go through all that. And then you can kind of treat the backend almost like a database because you're, you're essentially authorized. The user is authorizing you to kind of like do some of this stuff on their behalf, maybe. So in gaming, I don't know exactly what people are thinking, but there are a lot of like interesting and innovative approaches to kind of integrating Web3 stuff. But one of them is around ownership of items and games and being able to transfer those. And I think like having the ability to have someone authenticate on a a mobile device, on their Xbox and on a computer and be able to kind of transact their items across all these different platforms kind of makes a lot of sense to me because I might be on the game earning and, and building stuff and like even buying some stuff. And then I might be in my bed, like laying in bed, going through my phone and be like, have someone offer me to exchange an item or something. And I, I might be able to log into my mobile app and exchange that. So I think like that type of flow makes a lot of sense to me. But the core pieces of the game are, are not going to need any decentralization or blockchain stuff at all. Yeah. I, I feel like also this whole dynamic around like you can have centralized parts of a game and decentralized parts of a game plays into this question around latency and sort of solves it. I don't know if this is still a problem with gaming and blockchain, but it felt like for a while latency was like the primary problem where it's just like people don't want to wait two minutes for a transaction to to settle on chain in order to have a like Fortnite skin or whatever. Is that still part of the conversation? Yeah, totally. And I think that with some of the newer techniques and the newer networks, it's being solved to some extent. So I think like Monad, Solana, these types of networks are great because they enable that type of experience. And what you can then do, if you know that the finality of a transaction is like 400 milliseconds, that's still slower than a traditional database, but it's way faster than even a layer two on in the Ethereum ecosystem for the most part. I know there's some exceptions, but when you have that, you can build what's called like an optimistic API on top of that, meaning that when you press a button, the button says success immediately. And then under the hood, they're waiting for that success message to actually come back. And if it comes back, fail, then you revert on the client. But 99.999% of the time, it's going to actually succeed. So you don't have to even take that into account. So to the user, it looks like it's succeeding. And because you can get that feedback within half of a second, it still works. That's exactly what we're doing with Lens Protocol, actually. So if you transact on Polygon, like we immediately just feedback the user success. And then if something goes wrong, then it reverts. And most of the time, it doesn't revert because you know we already have done all the checks to make sure that it should... The only way it would not... Re- if it, <laughs> the only way I guess it would revert is if like something happened between the time that that button was pressed and the finality happened, you know? So that's like a very tiny number of circumstances. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of super bullish on the networks that are offering like one-tenth of a cent transaction cost or cheaper 10,000 transactions per second or more and like one second or less finality. I think that combo enables like a bunch of use cases, definitely gaming. 
Yeah. I mean, on that note, like, I'm curious. I mean, I think part of in my head, what fits into this, like, middle ground centralized and decentralized infrastructure is intense and anything that's sort of like stored off chain for a period of time that feels similar to me to like having a front end or something that hasn't totally happened yet. And so yeah. I'm curious what role you think like intense and private mempools will play in some of this consumer stuff versus like just writing to the chain and showing something different on the application and just waiting. I guess yeah, those I mean, are totally, it, they're not equivalent actually. So that it's kind of not a fair equivalency, but I'm curious what role you think intense will play in general and in, in these types of applications. I think more specifically, I think it's going to be, I think one of the most interesting use cases of app chains and rollups are definitely gaming. And I was, I had sent a tweet out a couple of days ago that, got a lot of discussion around like app chains and stuff. I think I had about 80% of people agree with me and about 20% maybe disagree or offer like alternative thoughts. Because when I was working at Celestia, the main idea was that we were all moving towards this app chain world or this roll-up world. And I think what I've learned over the last few years is that if you take an all-in approach on anything, then you're probably wrong. It needs to be more like nuanced. So I think that's kind of what I was coming to the conclusion of. That I'm having more of like a nuanced thought process behind what this looks like. But if you have your own, if you have your own blockchain, your own uh, roll up, you can control like everything and you don't need a lot of liquidity for DeFi and stuff in a game. So a roll up might make a lot of sense. But if you're trying to break into the blockchain world and get, become known, then it makes a lot more sense to use a network that already has everything already set up for you. And then I think the the path that a lot of people are going to take is like you build an app on an existing L1 or L2 that's widely adopted, liquidity, DeFi, everything built in users. And then once you become really successful, then you spin off and create your own app chain. And I think we're already starting to see that kind of process play out with DYDX and Zora and a few other rollups and stuff that, I, that I'm aware of. Yeah, when Twitter chain or lens chain or any other, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think actually it makes sense for social a lot. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, to make the economic model incredibly clear, I think that a major challenge with protocols is that it's very hard to make money. And so if you spin up your own app chain, not only can you provide a better user experience from a low gas perspective, maybe even no gas. I don't know so much about that, but it's possible. But you also make money off of sequencer fees. So there's a lot of things that I think just make it make sense. And like Conduit is doing a lot of work there to make something like the OP stack very easy to launch. So I think that makes a lot of sense. I agree. I, I don't know much about Conduit, though. I would love to maybe dive into that when I'm off. Or maybe you can kind of give people a quick overview of what Conduit is. Yeah, I certainly don't claim to be an expert, but but from what I understand, they're basically making it a lot easier to launch your own OP stack chain for specifically for applications. So I think Zora is on Conduit and they, I think, just make a lot of the tooling much more simple because I, I think operationally, it's not super easy still to launch a, a chain. And so I think they're doing a lot of interesting work. Very cool. But yeah, I mean... I am curious about the data migration. Like, I'd imagine it's kind of daunting to imagine that Lens would migrate to an entirely different chain. Although I guess some of it's stored on Arweave, but like, is there a weirdness around, you know, versioning and migrating data from a, like a social protocol to an entirely different chain? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, but we've already done it once when we migrated from Lens V1 to Lens V2. So basically, when Lens V2 launched, it was an entirely new set of smart contracts. So we had to kind of migrate all the transactions that had happened. 
And then once they were all migrated, the network was, you know, caught up and we basically then started allowing people to, to transact on the new network. Data migration is always just a super very hard thing. It's like a, like you have to be a super senior engineer to, to be able to understand and actually accomplish that in a way that doesn't break everything. And, uh, and thankfully we have someone, Josh, who's uh, the head of engineering around like all of the lens stuff. That's really, really smart. And I wouldn't put it beyond him to be able to, to do that as well if that ever happened. But it's not something that on our roadmap or anything like that, that I can speak to. Yeah, I was talking to Horsefax about how Farcaster had to make a similar migration and like the amount of edge cases that they needed to figure out because there's so much data, it needs to be spread across so many transactions. And like if you have to worry about the transaction ordering and that you're like not duplicating and or that the data doesn't change by the time one transaction gets in there versus another one. Yeah. I'm glad that you also have someone that's qualified to to worry about that stuff. Yeah, I wanted to close out the thought on the the gaming side. The one other sort of like counter example to the the idea of sort of like get big and then fork that was tried was probably Axie Infinity built Ronin, which was their own chain. And like all of that was in place before they got super popular. The way that they went about it, I didn't love because it wasn't a sort of like standardized EVM experience. I couldn't just like switch my MetaMask to the Ronin chain. They had their own like wallet, which meant that they had to like build their own sort of a, an AMM on there for being able to like swap axes. And I think that's like a good example of why you don't want to go down that road sort of like pre-popularity. It just led to so many more headaches. Um, oh, for up sure. Front. And yeah, it, it seemed like a, a rough experience. Yeah, I don't know if you had any other thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't know a ton about how that played out with Axie. Um, I do know they kind of went through a hype cycle and all of that. But yeah, I think that the reason that you might consider it at that point and you wouldn't for sure do it on day one, for the most part at least, is like, yeah, you're asking users to take on an additional barrier to entry and more headache and you're giving yourself a ton more work to do up front. And unless you have like a very loyal user, at least today, the onboarding experience is going to be a lot harder than them just staying where they're at or even just using something that's already out there. Yeah, totally. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, I guess something that that brings up in the context of having a, a weird migration situation going on where you're not totally compatible with other wallets is I do think as we see some of these consumer experiences being built out, regardless of whether or not you start on a chain that's compatible with something like MetaMask or not, is this interesting question of like, where does the wallet live? How does the wallet exist within that experience? You mentioned in the beginning, the acquisition of family. And I think we're seeing a pretty big shift towards like larger consumer plays, either having their own wallet or doing embedded wallets. Like there's a bunch of different approaches. I'm curious what it looks like to have family within the Avara family. And yeah, the thinking behind that. So family is still kind of in a private, not a private beta, but in a beta. And I think you can kind of sign up and try it out. It's, it's so it's not a publicly, you know, made available product quite yet. But I think one of the things that stands out to me the most beyond the techno technology itself, which we are continuing to improve and, and update. And we have a lot of really cutting bleeding edge, even stuff like on the roadmap is the quality of that team. They're maybe the team that's focused most on design and UX that I've ever worked with in my whole life. And everything that they do is so, so polished. And I think that their 
attention to detail just reminds me a lot of kind of like an Apple product. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it made sense for us to basically have an opportunity to acquire them. But first of all, I'm not, I wasn't involved in that whole process. I'm just speaking from my experience so far, you know, but they've been amazing, amazing people to work with. Like just the, the highest quality engineering, highest quality design. They, they just really care about that extra mile and like really bringing a quality product to market. So I think that when I used it for the first time, I was just kind of blown away at how polished and awesome it felt. I think that people will also have that aha moment when they, when they try it out. But we also have been thinking about this space for a long time. And in fact, ever since I started with Ave and Avara back in October of 2022, along the lines of like some stuff that we're also building in that space that will complement what they've already built that will be going to market at a certain point and maybe this year or so. So yeah, it just complemented a lot of the stuff that we were already doing. We can integrate it with a lot of the applications that we're, we're already building. They have also ConnectKit, which is similar to Web3 Modal, which is a very, very great way for developers to kind of connect wallets and stuff. So it was like a combination of an Aquahire as well as the technology was amazing and it complemented a lot of the stuff that we were already doing. Totally. Yeah. I feel like it certainly feels like we can't have too many people who are user focused and product focused in crypto. I think sometimes people get developers and builders get very excited and in the weeds. And sometimes, like we talked about earlier, that means that you don't necessarily have the most polished products. I guess as we close out, I'm curious, you know, you've seen a lot of consumer like founders and builders over the last few years in crypto. What are your best tips or pieces of advice for people who are interested in building either, you know, in the Web3 social space or maybe in consumer crypto more broadly? Yeah, I think that it's all about experimentation and seeing what excites you and, and interests you the most by not being beholden to just a single area, but trying all of the things that are out there. And that's one thing, just experimenting a lot. And then another thing is trying to connect with the actual people within those organizations. They're very, very much there to help you and make you successful. So part of DevRel is like us answering questions on Telegram, jumping on calls, answering technical questions, trying to get them funding and get them grants and stuff if they need it. So I think like a lot of times people are working in a little bit of a silo compared to what they could be doing in this space because everyone seems to be so helpful and outgoing and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, experimentation, try to reach out to the people that are working in these different organizations and then look at the successful applications that are out there and just copy what they're doing and make it slightly better. That's always a thing that you should consider doing because like if someone's built something and it's successful, they're obviously doing something right. So just kind of learn from what is already out there. And a good example of that, in my opinion, is like Frentech. I think they did some really cool stuff around the onboarding experience and using a wallet that enabled non-EOA login and a few other things, making it a PWA and all that stuff. So yeah, if you paid attention to that, then you might have learned a little bit from them and kind of taken it to your next thing. And over time, you kind of learn more things, you build more connections, and you have more opportunities. So, And then like, I think one thing that people don't really do enough often, and it's kind of hard, I guess, if you're not, if you don't have a large social following, but just sharing everything that you do publicly, 
So if you've built something, tweet about it, make sure you put it on GitHub, document it really well, and then make a video out about it and then make another tweet about it. Like try to show it off multiple times in different ways, get it in front of people's eyes because no one's going to know if you built something awesome if you just build it and then don't talk about it. And I think we're not, at least me, and I actually know almost every developer I've ever talked to, it feels uncomfortable to do that. It feels kind of like slimy. It feels like you're marketing and none of us like marketing, but it's what you got to do. I mean, you know, People aren't going to know about your shit if you're not if you're not like talking about it. So <laughs> I think one example of this is like Dapa Dan today. He's a guy that has been my friend and developer now for like two years, and we met in person for the first time maybe in the last year. But he's been really outgoing on social media, meeting people. Today he created like uh, his first YouTube video and tweeted about it. It's gotten a lot of good reception. He's had so many job opportunities in the last couple of months just because of his outgoing nature and. You know, he's only been really in this space part time for like a year, year and a half, I think. Yeah, no, I mean, as a dev as well, I got I got into this because I like to talk to computers more than people. But the reality is that you got to talk to people too, and I think that being able to sort of get outside of your comfort zone and and put yourself out there is is like a really the mark of a good, a truly good engineer is someone who's is more well rounded and doesn't tuck themselves away into the terminal for too long. Yeah, one last point, and then I'll turn it over to Chase. I couldn't help but notice when I was looking into your GitHub, you have a full year of green squares on GitHub where you made a commit every single day during 2023, something like 3,000 contributions total. So first off, congrats. Second, how did you manage that? (laughs) Because that's... Wow. Yeah, I mean, going in and doing it on purpose, actually, sometimes I'll literally commit an empty an empty line, just to kind of get a commit that day. So if I have like sure. one or two commits that day, it's because I'm trying to keep that streak. So I've done it on purpose. I probably really cut coded about 80-90% of those days. But the rest of those days were like empty commits just to keep that green graph. Because when, when I do get opportunities, they go and investigate your GitHub. And it's sure. um, impressive to kind of see that full green graph. So being straight up honest, that's kind of what I do. Um, yeah, that's, and, that's fair. And yeah, it's, it's actually effective. But I mean, obviously, if you look at my GitHub, you'll also see that I've created like 150 apps this year. So it's like, I'm not, it's not like I'm not coding. But yeah, I intentionally do that because um, there's like a lot of like small hacks that you can have as a developer to, to just get slight edge over, over other people because everyone's competing for everything like right now, you know, and all, always. And, you know, you want to do everything you can to kind of like maybe stand out. Not that I'm like looking for work, but you never know what's going to happen. If I ever decided I yeah. want to do something, you know, you want to. It's, it's a good practice, regardless. That, I guess out there. So yeah, and it looks cool. You have an entire, <laughs> you know, green block. Yeah, it definitely. <laughs> it gives off the uh, the guy she tells you not to worry about vibes. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> well, Nader, it was so wonderful having you on the pod. Where can people learn more about you and all of the work that you're doing? Totally on any of the Lens networks. I'm Nader, N-A-D-E-R. On Twitter, I'm Dabit3. On GitHub, I'm Dabit3. And on Substack, I forgot what I am. Actually, just go to Nader.codes. And that's that's basically where everything for me is. My Substack, YouTube, everything. So Perfect. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the pod. This was so fun. Appreciate yeah, it was you, good Nader. to see you again. Thank Thanks you. for having me.